Welcome to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, the roundtable Dungeons and Dragons discussion where you never know what you're going to get. I'm Adam, and with me today are Dan and Terry. Hello. Apparently we're doing the hellos again. I thought we weren't doing hellos yeah, anymore. We got back and forth. You know what? Fuck you, Dan. Fucking hell, Dan. You've been wrong on everything so far. <laughs> this is this is a giveaway answer, and you've already... You know what? I'm done with you. Let's roll with it. Okay, so... Do you want me to just go? And, yes. Well, Travis is here. I mean... Yeah. Anyway, we are answering a few questions from Lauren, who was our giveaway winner at Yoen's Doodles. You can check. He's got a crazy spelling. You can check the show notes for it. And as a point of interest for my own lizard brain, I tracked which entries were due to shares on Instagram stories, and it turns out that hers was one of the stories, uh, not her comments. So it was one of those that won the prize. Cool. So remember that, internet land. Every entry counts. So Yoen's Doodles is an account where people can go to get character art designed. She does beautiful commissions of D&D characters, and she works more with traditional art than with digital, although she has the option to do both. And I personally love hand-drawn art because I feel like I can really feel the love and effort that went into each stroke, and you can definitely see her passion in the work on her Instagram page. Lauren also is a DM and a player, and she's really excited about the hobby. She's a fellow dice addict, like Dan, and uh, actively games and cosplays as well, like Dan, but there's probably less letter. She asked us... Uh, she's asked us about uh, something she found difficult to grasp as a new DM, something she finds new players get confused about, and a homebrew rule that she's curious about our opinions on. So we're going to kind of launch into the three different sections, but there's no commercial breaks or whatnot. It's in the regular mailbag. So cool. We good? Yep. Sure. Congrats. On what? No, the, the congrats to Lauren. You are the most awkward fucking human being <laughs> I've ever met. Congratulations, Lauren, on being the winner. Are you happy now? Yes. Yeah. No, that's better. <laughs> All right. So... Topic one. Dan can't even speak to women who are going to listen later. She's, not really <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's in the future. So um, that hurts. That hurts deep down inside, Terry. Dan, you're you're married. You have three kids, so you it did it right. I don't have to talk to women anymore. That's, that's it. That's, that's, that yeah. means you succeeded. I'm done. I win the game. You win the game. Yeah. Are you too fucking fit? Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> All right. So, um, <laughs> why do I even come to this? If we can't answer, it'll be less than an hour, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan just spilled fucking beer all over Terry. Now we've got a map of Africa all over my dude. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. It's okay. It's Scottish beer. <laughs> Good luck editing this, Travis. Fuck. This is why we're trying to do a walk. Travis is throwing a towel at me and telling me to clean myself up. So, while Terry fucking cleans himself off, I'm going to keep going. Dan, hands to yourself from now on. Do you understand? Yes, sir. There we go. Now we'll drive home stinking the beer. Better than burger sauce. <laughs> yeah, clean the burger sauce off. <laughs> All right. So, what is leveling? That was the, that was the first thing. So, for for new DMs, how does leveling work? And while anyone that's played the game has a very basic understanding of this, do you guys realize that the the rule set, the rules as written, is actually spread across? The three core rule books. And so there is no one place to find all of this info. Uh, I only found that out 10 minutes ago when you told me off air. But yeah. I didn't realize that until that point. Yeah, me neither. All right, so let me, let me go through it really quickly. Sure. I'm just going to go verbatim right out of the books. As your character goes on adventures and overcomes challenges, he or she gains experience represented by experience points. A character who reaches a specified experience point total advances in capability. This advancement is called gaining a level. And then it proceeds to go on about what happens when you gain a level and how you get things. Um, there's also a really cool chart that is on page 15 of the player's handbook, which shows you exactly how many experience points you need in order to level. Okay. Right. All right. So that is in the player's handbook. So far, not super helpful for a dungeon master. In the monster manual, it says a monster's challenge rating tells you how great a threat the monster is. An appropriately equipped and well-rested party of Four adventurers should be able to defeat a monster that has a challenge rating equal to its level without suffering any deaths. Now, that's a very broad stroke because, I mean, how many encounters are you chaining in a row? What's the terrain like? We've talked about this before. Yeah. So the, those are broad strokes, but it doesn't say that in here. Also, it does give an example. Uh, for example, a party of four third-level characters should find a monster with a challenge rating of three to be a worthy challenge, but not a deadly one. And then it breaks down what exactly you're looking at with the fraction CR levels. Yeah. And what it means when they're over 20th level. But again, doesn't give you anything about rewarding experience points. Those are CR levels. There is a table in there which shows you exactly how many experience points each challenge rating is worth, but again, not what to do with them. 
So now you head over to the Dungeon Master's Guide, which is probably the least read book in Dungeons and Dragons outside of the magic items. Uh, Sword Coast Adventure Guide is pretty. Yeah, I yeah I'll agree with you. Most people get about three pages into that and say, "Why did I fucking waste twenty bucks yep. on this?" <laughs> so okay, experience points from the Dungeon Master's Guide. Experience points fuel level advancement for player characters and are most often the reward for completing combat encounters. Each monster has an experience point value based upon its challenge rating when adventurers defeat one or more monsters, typically by killing, routing, or capturing them, they divide the total XP of the numbers of monsters evenly among themselves. So again, when players defeat all of the monsters, you total up what all of the XP is for the monsters and you divide it by the number of people in your party. If the party receives substantial assistance from one or more NPCs, count those NPCs as party members. Because the NPCs made the fight easier, individual characters receive fewer experience points. All right. Okay. All this tracks so far. All of that is really straightforward for you and I. I I don't deal with experience points in 5th ed, right? And we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But yeah, that's how it's always been done, right? Bigger the party, the less experience. Yeah. Then it talks about absent characters and how to uh, handle it when a player doesn't show up. And it pretty much says you can either include them in the total or not. But it takes like five paragraphs to say that. Sure. <laughs> and then it talks about non-combat challenges. In there, it really just tells you to decide whether or not you want to reward them based on whether or not this encounter was easy, medium, hard, or difficult. But there's no breakdown of CR rating or anything else. So that's it. Okay. Which is... Super not helpful. And then there's a breakdown of what milestone experience is and uh, what level advancement without experience at all is. Then it gives you actual XP uh, thresholds by character level and it does break down combat encounter difficulty. And here's the thing that I think most people don't realize because we've complained before that you only get experience when you fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It says here there are four categories of encounter difficulty. Easy. An easy encounter doesn't tax the player's resources or put them in serious peril. They might lose a few hit points, but victory is pretty much guaranteed. Medium. A medium encounter usually has one or two scary moments for the players, but the characters should emerge victorious with no casualties. One or more of them might need to use healing resources. That's pretty standard. Okay. Yep. Sure. Hard. A hard encounter could go badly for the adventurers. Weaker characters might get taken out of the fight, and there's a slim chance that one or more characters might die. And then the last one is deadly. I don't think I need to break that down. That is... Bad shit. Yeah. All right. So, but it gives you a table and it shows you exactly. I'm going to show you guys here. It shows you at what level, how many experience points are handed out for each difficulty level. Right. Okay. I don't think anyone knows that this table fucking exists in the DMG. When they're creating social encounters and landslides and environments and terrain and exploration. And and they're not they're not digging into this table to figure out how much experience am I going to give. Because in theory, scaling up the side of a mountain, if you climb Mount Everest, that's in real life as deadly, if not more so, than fighting a lion. So should you not get equal like or greater experience for it, even though there's no combat involved? I dislike that table, not, uh, not because it exists. I like the fact that it exists. I dislike that table because explaining what a deadly social encounter is explaining what a deadly exploration encounter is and like where that line goes with all of the pillars of of uh, D&D that we've talked about multiple well, times. Well, they break down what exactly a deadly encounter is and that's when everybody will fucking die. An easy one is where you get away without using resources. So for an exploration encounter, did you use torches? Did you have to use up a bunch of your rope? Did you have to blow spells to get through this exploration? For social, are you going to be executed? Do they have a sword to your throat and you have to say the right thing? That's fair enough. Right? And, and even even though it says deadly as well, like it, that could be converted to just an absolute failure. So yeah. it might not be that a member of your party dies. It might be that the hostage you're trying to rescue or negotiate out of the situation will die. You fail the quest. Yeah. Right? The MacGuffin get, falls into enemy hands, right? Yeah. Like, so I feel like this could be useful. Now, we actually talk about... Um, leveling and rewards and the way that we do things in a episode 47, I believe. So uh, for those of you who are interested, go back and, and check that one out. But guys, let's grab our dice and roll initiative on this. Sure. Do you like experience? Is it enough the way that they did it? Would you break it down differently? Would you put it all in one book? And if so, which one? What are your opinions on all of this? Let's do it. Let's do it. I got a seven. Five. Two. 
All right. Wow, we suck today. We are, I'm not good at this game. So, do I like experience? No, not anymore. I, I prefer to run with a milestone format, which we have talked about in the past and will again talk about in this episode. I don't think it is conducive to the ease of play that 5th edition seems to want to uh, put out there. With such systems as the advantage system out there and the proficiency system out there, D&D 5e has gone out of its way to make the game more accessible. Adding experience points removes some of that accessibility in my mind. I like the idea of using a story beat to level or um, some great deed that the party has done. Which is uh, what they talk about in the milestone section in the DMG. Yeah, and I think that fits a lot more. And this is coming from a guy who has experience points literally tattooed on his arm. Yep. It's a bit of a sticky issue for me because I'm like, I got it tattooed mm-hmm. and I don't like using them anymore. But I also don't listen to the Misfits too often anymore. And well, that's in my skin. You're so. wrong. <laughs> and you, you should go back to listening to them because okay. they're fantastic. Anyways, and so. I'm no longer property of Big Daddy Pimp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to get the tattoo updated. Anyways, uh... Terry, your turn. I, I'm the other way. I, After having that small conversation, I now appreciate experience more because I see how we can convert this to social encounters. We can convert this to exploration encounters. It kind of gets my mind racing with creativity on, on different ways that we would do that. I do like it more. However, I do have the, the slight flip side, which is when a game is based on experience, I find it can hold the campaign up if the players aren't gaining enough experience quick enough because they're not leveling at the, at the right amount of time to move on with the rest of the campaign, if that makes sense. You have to I, rely on grinding random encounters. Right. Which, which to me, encourages a certain sense of murder-hoboism, which 5e is trying to discourage. Right. Now we're slaying chickens to get to level 3. Right. On like, a, let's right. let's go out and just annihilate that entire troll village. But we're level 12! Because, and if you're moving into, like, tier 3, tier 4, we're seeing those big bad guys. Me as the DM's going, these guys are only level 2 because they're fucking about. And so, uh, level 12, sorry. So they're, they're not ready for this yet. So now we got to come up with some side quest thing to get these guys some experience. Because success in the game is based on experience rather than milestones. See, I'm the exact opposite because I, you guys know me, I throw ridiculous encounters at people. Right, like, right. Like, yeah. like, hey, you guys are level eight, have a night walker. Like, let's do this. I gave you some magic items. You can do it. I believe in you. Only two of you will die. Let's go. Right? So I, I tend to, to play that way. <laughs> but you've like done Negan. the same. You're the Negan DM. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. kill one. But at the same time, you've done the same thing with encounters that have no combat in them whatsoever. Yeah. Right? Like uh, the one that sticks to my mind is us on a boat finding a uh, treasure chest on the mast of another boat. But the water around that boat was surrounded by piranhas. Quippers in Quippers. D&D, but sure. Yeah. But like that didn't have any combat in it. Was certainly deadly. But you threw that at us as a interesting, fun little random encounter that had some reward for sure, but definite some risk. Yeah, as but well. but that's my point is that because I ramp it up and it's so difficult all of the time, and I give real challenges. The idea that hey, you guys are going to level three times because of this one encounter. I did a riot in a town square one time where one of you turned into a dragon. You guys fought multiple death tyrants and vampires, and it was a shit show. Beautiful, loved it. I absolutely had a great time. <laughs> you guys end. would that have leveled the... six times in that, that one encounter. That was the session I wasn't there, so yeah, yeah. Which, which I is... was the character that changed into a bronze dragon. Yeah. That's right. I think that was my idea. Oh, well done. You're welcome. I don't like experience because I find it can level people at a at the wrong pace in the opposite direction. Same right. thing that Terry says. But ultimately, everyone's complaint about 4th edition was that it was too gamified. Mm-hmm. It felt like a video game because you had powers that were essentially on a recharge. Squares you were moving, not feet you were moving. Right. Just, just the wording of it was wrong. There were... Everybody was given... You're a striker or a brute or a slasher. Like, each monster was given this this role that they could that they could fill and you would know how to react to them. Yeah, it's not Pokemon. No, it, it isn't. And it's not this is not Diablo and it felt like Diablo. Right. Right. Yeah. Fourth edition. And this gamifies the experience of, of telling the story. Then again, we also all sit around the table and say well, this is a collaborative storytelling experience for people. And there are other people out there that are like, no, bitch, I kill goblins. Yeah, exactly. How good am I at killing goblins? Give me a mechanical, mathematical figure. And play Pathfinder. Yeah, and if you're going to do that, not, well, sure, play Pathfinder, 3rd edition, 4th uh, edition, AD&D, or even track. I'm interested to see what the actual progression is now because you need 300 points to get to level, uh, for the first level, and you need 50,000 to get up to level 20. Yep. Like between 19 and 20, so... Dividing that by four or five people, you probably have some NPCs there. How long does it take to do that? Yeah. 
right? And is that a single, like, you fight the Tarrasque, bang, you're level 20? Right. If I fight the Tarrasque at level 8, and we just open up, we, we let him swallow a uh, bag, bag of holding, holding, and then put a portable hole in the side of it, make him swallow a portable hole, and those two things mash, and he just dies outright, do we get all that fucking experience? Am I level 8, and now I'm level 15? Right. Right? And... Can you imagine that happening? Like the Tarrasque dies and you just go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then all of a sudden you get four more attacks and I, you I can shit out is, seventh level spells. I believe but. there is a thing in the player's handbook saying that if if the DM is giving you this type of an encounter at the CR level, um, they're doing something wrong. When it comes to that point, like unless your DM is well experienced and you have as a player ample trust in their ability, having these incredibly deadly encounters will often just blow up a group, not just a the campaign yeah so you don't do that <laughs> but again there are some people that have a shit ton of fun doing that so why not do it like i can make an argument both ways yeah generally yeah. speaking new dms don't do this get a couple of years under your belt mm-hmm. and by a couple of years i mean like 104 dm sessions right mm-hmm. not not one every month do we have anything else to say about experience like for new dms to understand how to break this down you divide it by the number of characters present not players around the table that help in the encounter. So if you have a non-combatant that sits back and swigs potions, do they count? Do they get experience? The caveat there was if an NPC gives a notable... But if a player character decides not to get involved, your edgelord sits in the back and says, I don't really have a problem with goblins. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to kill them. Then fuck that guy. Don't give him experience. Sure. But what if he gets hit and soaks up some of the action economy? Right, like there's gray area here, right? Yeah, so, there very much is. There's so, some ambiguity. So use your best judgment based on the level of engagement and involvement. And I don't like to have a level gap between players. So Well, you have that one guy whose life goes to shit, can't make it to four sessions, and all of a sudden he's two levels behind everybody. And they say right in the material that that's okay. In the section on absentee players, they say, that's all right, one or two levels is not going to make a big dif- difference. And my perspective on that is, sure... At low level, mechanically, it's not going to make a huge difference. But around the table, that player is going to know that they are the underpowered person getting carried through. Yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way because the way I was doing it in the early days, I I had level gaps with my players. That it got a little bit, the level gap got wider than I intended it to, but I definitely felt it. Definitely felt it where there was, you know, bordering on resentment, right? Where it's like, fuck, well, I can't do it. I'm. I can't do anything. I can't contribute anything to this encounter right now because it's just way above what I'm capable of. At one point, we had the barbarian sorcerer at level 9, the monk at level 8, the ranger at level 7, and the cleric at level 5. Yeah. Right? And so that was a huge gap. Now, I was the cleric, and I'm like, I don't care, man. By the time I catch up on this massive battlefield, you guys will have killed everything anyway. Yeah. So (laughs) it wasn't a big deal to me. But no, for new players especially, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. Because people see levels as how good am I at this game. Yeah, that's why I would definitely recommend new players, new DMs. Use the milestone method for now. Use CRs to balance encounters, not to reward encounters. I really like everything that it gave um, for DMs to balance encounters. That was perfectly fine. It was the applying the experience points to the players where it starts to get a little shaky and weird for me. Yeah, yeah. So we are going to now jump into the second question, which was alignment for new players. Hmm. This is confusing as fuck because they have seen that meme online of the grid of nine squares and they go, oh, this one says Batman is lawful neutral. This one says Batman is neutral good. And this one says he's chaotic evil. How does alignment work? We're going to argue all day. Batman's the example, right? Like I've heard so many different, just for that character. On this podcast, we got into that argument. (laughs) I'm actively biting my tongue right now because he's fucking lawful (laughs) neutral. And you're not going to say he's neutral good again. No, he's not neutral good. He's lawful good. That's what I said. No, no, it's not. You said it. Fuck, Adam. (laughs) All right, so... So, let's go with what's actually written down in the player's handbook for this, all right? And we'll we'll use this as our kind of general guideline because alignment for new players can be very, very confusing. Right. Let's talk about... I'm going to give you the one-line sentence for each one of these, and then we're going to talk really, really quickly about what it isn't. Sure. Okay. okay. So, uh, lawful good. Lawful good creatures can be counted on to do the right thing as expected by society. Okay. What is it not? Doing the wrong thing is expected by society. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Chief. It's it's not lawful stupid. There, it's, yeah. It's not the 
I will do this no matter what and screw over the rest of the party. Yeah, because yeah. that's too extreme. Adam, you made a good point months ago. You said that most people in the real world, most people that we meet every day are lawful good. Because we don't drink and drive. We don't jaywalk most of the time. We don't punch people in the face just because they mildly irritated us. Yeah. We, we do what is expected of us by society 99% of the time. Yeah. By the alignment thing, we would be. But, like, Lawful Stupid is the guy who's, like, sitting at his, uh, by his friend saying, no, 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 you you can't do that. You can't do any of this. You have to live my life my way. Yeah. Right? And, and that's when Lawful Good becomes Lawful Stupid, and it's not Lawful Stupid. Okay, so Neutral Good. Neutral Good folk do the best they can to help others according to their needs. Sure. So, what is it not? It's, you're not... You're not beholden to laws, but you But you're will, not selfish... You're, you're going to follow the laws, generally speaking. Right. So this, honestly, is the paragon of good. Yeah. Honestly, this is, when you are just a good person, laws be damned. But also follow the laws, because they're there for a reason. But if it doesn't line up, I'm going to do it anyway. A neutral good person, here's how I do it in my head. You know there are charities out there that you donate 10 bucks, they skim 8 bucks off the top mm-hmm. for, for processing fees. Right? And so only 2 bucks goes towards whatever starving orphan or whatnot. A neutral good person does it anyway because those starving orphans need that $2. Right. Right. A lawful good person says, well, you don't know. We They do need processing fees. And a chaotic good person says, well, no, fuck that. I'll, I'll create my own charity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But neutral good says, no, there's already a method here. If I want them to have 10 bucks, I'll, I'll donate 50. Sure. Yeah. So that, that's how I, I figure it. Chaotic good creatures act as their conscience directs with little regard for what others expect. Yeah. I always view the con- the idea of a conscience as being something a little bit more neutral. Yes. It's not necessarily a good thing in my mind. It implies a good nature to the conscience here. So I that's where I would disagree with that. But I would say that they do the best they can regardless of what society tells them. Not necessarily as their conscience guides, but the best they can. Well, good is about conscience. We've had this discussion as well. What is good about? Is it about the sanctity of life? Is it about selfishness or not selfishness? Yeah, but having a conscience to me is what can I look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, I'm okay with what just happened. Mm -hmm. Which is why I say it's neutral because uh, when we get to like the chaotic evil, a chaotic evil person could go through, slay and burn down an entire orphanage and still look in the mirror and be like yeah i'm happy with this i can still look at myself i'm awesome yeah it's what is good according to them yeah so the idea of a conscience is variable and i i don't think it necessarily what what about a what about a social conscience then yeah i guess i I, I don't mean societal i mean social like you you want the best for others and what yes chaotic chaotic good i kind of see is the closest thing to the greater good Right? Doesn't matter who you offend or who you hurt along the way, if what you believe you are doing is, is correct in a bigger way. Yeah, but I would say that neutral good is a paragon of all. See, we got into this argument in the Silver Dragons episode, right. which hasn't come out yet. But wait for that shit. That gets deep. And so surprisingly so. It got yeah. deeper than I thought it would. Um if you guys want to hear us actually hash this shit out, head over to episode fifty seven. We're gonna move right along. Lawful neutral individuals act in accordance with law. Tradition and personal codes. It's not evil. I know this is lawful neutral. I know it's. I know it's not. But I find a lot of a lot of lawful neutral people play them lawful jackass. Like oh, they're rules lawyers. Your rules lawyers sitting here and say, yeah. well, technically, yeah. the law is that we should walk on the left side of the street. But I flipped gravity, so fuck your left side. Like, and it's just like you're you're just being a dick. Yeah, you're just being. That's a not dick. what it's lawful like neutral. It's like where the law and the code is more important than what the result is. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. yeah. I also look at the Modrons as well as being just complete creatures of order. Yeah. And to, to the point where they don't see life outside of their own... Dimension. Their own, not even... The, yeah, dimension, but their own occupation. My job is this, and this is my job, and this is yeah. how I live my life, and my life is lived this way. I, robot. That's it. Yeah. I, robot as yeah. well. So, true neutral is the alignment for those who prefer to steer clear of moral questions and don't take sides. Doing what seems best... At the time. That means you are not a pacifist. I find a lot of true neutral people play pacifists. In my experience as a DM. Yeah, a pacifist is unaligned. We have that as a tenth one that's not an option and it listed in these, right? Mm-hmm. But you see a lot of animals, creatures in the monster manual yeah. are unaligned. But we don't get that option as a player. For me, neutral comes as you maybe don't understand the concept of morality. You maybe don't understand the concept of good and evil. Instincts are, are purely for self-preservation. And going off of instinct as opposed to a code or, or moral belief. Yep, okay. Chaotic neutral creatures follow their whims, holding their personal freedom above all else. Sure. It strikes me as purely selfish. Dan? Chaotic neutral players are always the players that are like, no, this is what my character would do. And I hate those players. They tend not to play by, by the, the rules because 
they see chaotic neutral does not mean you are the embodiment of chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people see it that way, right? Cha- chaotic neutral means you're self-centered. You're um, about yourself. But being self-centered and being about yourself doesn't mean you are anti your group of friends that you go adventuring with. You are still a part of the party and you will treat the party at, with honor as any friend group would. Right, so if if you have a player as a new DM who is playing chaotic neutral as a very selfish, that's what my character would do. End quote. You need to sit down and talk to me like, hey, remember you are part of a party. Everyone around this table is here to have fun. Have fun. Listen to our party politics episode for a deep dive on that one. Yeah, it was episode nine. Nine. Yeah. The next one is lawful evil. Lawful evil creatures methodically take what they want within the limits of a code of tradition, loyalty, or order. Yeah, that's important. Is that it? it it's like politicians, right? It's like Darth Vader is the is the character I see there, where it's 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 methodical and it's well thought out, even if the um, the moral or ethical reasons for it are not correct or accepted by society. There's still a method and a code to their actions. Yeah, they are selfish within the realms of the law. To me, these are the rules lawyers. These are the guys who sit there and be like, "No, you got to check every single box because it benefits them in the end." Yeah, I would even say it's not even necessarily law. It's more just method. It's more just a attention to detail. Like the, yep. the monologuing big bad at the end strikes me as being more lawful evil than chaotic evil because the... Well, it depends on your big bad, right? But like, no, there's a reason why devils are lawful evil. Right, but here's one of the misconceptions about lawful evil. Devils and other creatures that make deals and contracts and whatnot. The big misconception here is that Yes, we deal with contracts. And yes, there are technical rules and there is the small print and there is stuff between the lines and contradictions and whatnot. You've got to read through these contracts carefully. At no point do they say, well, haha, fooled you. Yeah. Because that's not lawful. It's, yeah. They still very much follow the rules. And if you can best them, they say, well, shit, okay, fine. It's like the devil, the bet to fiddle, right? Um, Rip Charlie Daniels. Yeah. So he does give the option and the method and the way out. You have to beat me in a competition. It's a fiddling competition. Or a rock and roll competition if you like Tenacious D. Um, you fiddle of gold for your soul. Oh, the song. I don't know this song. The devil came down to Georgia. Oh, looking for a soul to steal? No? All right. Doesn't watch movies or listen to music apparently. We know he doesn't watch movies anyway. So not going down that road. I'm just going to get angry again. But, but <laughs> I already am. <laughs> But the idea is that it's not about fooling or tricking people. It is very clearly, these are the defined rules. If you can find a way outside of the rules to do this, you're fine. But if you break the rules, we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Neutral evil is the alignment for those who do whatever they can get away with without compassion or qualms. These are your sociopaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, this is pure evil in my mind. Like yeah. this is the evilest evil. Just like neutral good is the goodest good. And lawful neutral is the most lawful law. And chaotic neutral is the most chaotic chaos. Hmm. Um, just for clarity's sake, chaotic neutral, everyone sees that as the ability to be chaotic, but it does not mean that you are just farting fireballs and pushing people into the street and and then singing a happy song. And like, You're not a psychopath. Starting you're not, a you're not crazy. in the marketplace. Yeah. yeah, you're not just having a flash mob for no reason, right? Yeah. Like That's not what chaotic neutral is. It is the most chaotic of alignments. But remember, if you were that fucking chaotic, you would have starved to death. Yep. Because you just decided not to eat for seven days. So there has to be limits to it, right? All of this, you'll notice, is within respect to other people and society. Yes. And chaotic evil, of course, creatures that act with arbitrary violence spurred by their greed, hatred, or bloodlust. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, yes, I would also completely agree with that. This is also not necessarily the person who's just going to, you know, shank a merchant for the, the smallest slight. Again, I we'll get into this in a second. Uh, the alignments are another one of those holdovers from older systems that I don't think necessarily applies to 5e. Where, where do alignments come from, Dan? They come all the way from, were they in AD&D? Oh, yeah. They go way, way, way back. Yeah, to, to original D&D, where they were more systematic if you played lawful you played lawful they were originally intended as guides to how your character will act and kind of acting prompts in a way as paladins well. had to be lawful good monks but had to be lawful neutral mm. all rogues had to be chaotic right like there was a there were rules that necessitated certain alignments 
D&D &D no longer has those. There's only two classes in the game that necessitate race. There are no classes in the game that necessitate any sort of alignment. So it's a bit weird to me that there's a, put this much you know weight on it. But at the same time, like I said, they still function well as acting prompts, as guidance for when you don't know what your character will do. There's good prompts there, but it should never be the decision maker. It should be a decision influencer. Should alignment ever be a defense for an action? Hell to the no. You're playing a character, not an alignment. Things change. Situation. Yeah, yeah that was going to be my next question. Things should, change. Should alignments be fluid? And yes. Things will change in an instant. I'm lawful good, but I'll run out onto the highway to try and rescue a child if there's one there. I would like to think. <laughs> I, I am lawful good, and I like putting children in traffic. So, exactly. like, because anyway. everyone's got to have a hobby, right? Yeah. Okay, let's roll initiative. I got a couple of questions. Okay, fifteen, eleven, ten. Ah. Same order. All right. Oh wait, no, no. you get to go second. Yeah. All right. So, so what's the question? Adam? Um, in your opinion, are there any classes that lean towards one alignment? Or group of alignments. Lean toward them, yeah. I mean, like your, what? your paladins are going to still lean toward lawful good. Your barbarians are still going to lean towards chaotic in some way, shape, or form. Your rogues are still going to lean towards chaotic. Your bards are still going to lean Not towards... Not necessarily. I disagree with that 100%. I say lean towards. I think... I Okay. The, right. the you, you do you. I'll do me. The, the trope of the classes and how they play out on the table... Warlocks go evil. Informs, druids go neutral. Yeah, you know, right? Yeah. It informs. So yes, there's a lean... There is no issue breaking that lean. See, I gotta look at it even more granularly than that. It comes down to your subclasses. Sure, yeah. I right? mean, because you, yeah. if you have an inquisitive, chances are good that you're not chaotic evil, mm -hmm. right? Even like you're probably lawful if you're an inquisitive. Yeah, for sure. Right, and yet you're still a rogue. Same with mastermind. Scouts are probably neutral, even though they're a rogue, right? And you can really go the gamut with that shit. Where do you guys put bards? I put them chaotic good. In that direction. Well, my answer, I won't give just yet, but it's this will be a, a hint to it, is I don't put them anywhere specifically. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that there is... There's definitely temptation Yeah. to say, oh, okay, I played a fighter that was a soldier and he's a dwarven soldier, so he's going to go lawful good because he was in the military. Sure, fine. Yeah. You have that basic inclination, but you don't have to follow that shit is yeah. where I'm coming from. And looking at the class itself is not a proper way of thinking about it terry yeah i think these days we can get more creative and we i don't think they automatically lean in one direction i mean when we did our recording of, of our last game we played on the podcast i deliberately made a lawful good barbarian because the idea was ron thacker if you remember ron thacker Fuck. whose wife would run away with the bodybuilder yeah chad maybe his name was i forget Chaz. tyler i think it Chaz. was i think it was wow. Chaz. no 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 it was tyler Oh, yeah, Tyler, it was Tyler. Yeah, Tyler, Tyler, Tyler was correct. Yeah. But the idea was, it was like a falling down story. He tried so hard to obey the law, stay in his cubicle, follow the rules, do what's right, until he couldn't take it anymore, and he broke down. But still tries to stick by everything. The idea his rage comes from when he can't take it anymore, because he tries too hard to be lawful. I learned just now that Falling Down is the only movie that Terry's ever seen. I've never seen it, but you told Fuck me all about off. it. God damn it. Okay. You told right. me all about it. All right, so uh, next round, Dan, um, are there any races that lean into a specific uh, alignment? Dan, you go first on this one. Give it yeah, the current thanks. climate. Thanks, guys. <laughs> thanks. Uh, no. Playing it safe. I'm going to play it safe, uh, especially with the current political climate, which we can cut out. But no, I don't think there are... Because D&D 5e, I feel, has done a good job of kind of distancing itself from previous prejudices in that regard. The inclusion right out of the player's handbook of a drow and half-orcs and dragonborn really seems to me that D&D 5e is trying as hard as it can to uh, say that personal decision decides alignment, not genetic race. So, um, my my answer is, uh, I am going to be controversial in this. It very much does, but it's not a race thing. It's a societal thing. Yeah. So, for example, a small tribe of Grimlocks are definitely going to be evil. If you leave goblins to what goblins get up to on their own, they will always be neutral evil because yeah. that's how they run their lives. Neutral evil? Yeah. Bugbears are chaotic. 
Hobgoblins are lawful. Okay, but they all yeah. they all sit. Well, even. there's a sense of order to a goblin society, so that makes sense. Whereas a bugbear society, even though it's not really much of anything, is just they're chaos arbitrary and bullies, yeah. right? Like so. Anyway, my my answer is it's not necessarily about the race, but about the society that they come from. You can have elves who traditionally lean chaotic good, and it says Eladrin are the most chaotic good out there. But then drow are super freaking not chaotic good. Yeah. Right? So while you can read into the, the historical background of most of the D&D races, both Volos and Mordenkind's uh, Tome of Foes are great sources for, for this shit. You're going to understand that, yes, Modrons are lawful neutral. Yes, devils are, I, are I would... lawful evil. And so if these are races, and we've decided that some of them are playable... Why are we drawing the line for these? And so I, I really do think that we need to look at the society they come from and then how that individual reacts within that society. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was looking at it from a mind of purely the playable races. I think a lot of the reason why we see more of the monster races and monster classes with alignment is because them not being playable means they are going to be encounters that you go with and that is to be a hint to the DM of kind of how to roll these kind of encounters. I've said this before and I will say it again. They use the wrong word when they use the word racist because it makes us all think one thing when it should mean something else. Yeah. This was a science fiction game and there were a hundred different kinds of aliens to play. And some of them had different leanings because of their cultures or planets or, or empires or whatever it is in certain alignments or they've got different skill sets than others. None of us would blink a fucking eye. Yeah. But because these are all bipeds that can speak common and we called them races, it gets really touchy. Yeah. So I don't know where I'm coming from. Make it a societal thing. Don't make it a race thing. I agree yeah. 100%. And I think we've been talking all episodes so far about how we shouldn't see these alignments as being extreme. And everybody generally agrees with that, that I've spoken to out there. Until it comes to this conversation where everybody thinks in extremes. Are orcs evil? Uh, well, probably not, but it depends on who they're being viewed from. Because Their they, god uh, is, so like... Well, maybe, but also they might say, well, the elves took the forest and the dwarves took the mountains and I'm roaming around trying to steal what I can because there's nothing left. Uh, maybe a goblin might steal your... Good be- lord, Dive Terry. But, thanks, Dan. I, I listened to a good D&D podcast. Oh, great. Uh, it was but, called Dungeon Dudes. <laughs> but, but, they're actually pretty good. But somebody, oh, or, yeah. or like a, a goblin might steal your beard, Dan, but to them... That might be an evil act, a minor evil act. Because remember, just because it says evil, it doesn't mean slays everything in sight. It just does something. That's your bard. But (laughs) but a a goblin might steal your beer. But to them, you have to steal what you can because in their society, everything gets taken from you because we live in caves because we're not allowed to live in cities. So is that evil? Like when you have to steal your food? So it's kind of that conversation. So it's. Uh, are, are they automatically evil? Are they automatically good? It goes back to what I always say. is good or evil to, according to who? And the level of how good or evil. Okay? I might kick a chicken to get out of the way. That's technically an evil act. But also there was a lot of chickens there trying to cross the road while I was. And if, you, I, if you, I, Hold on. If I want to make one correction, Terry. Yes. It's according to whom? Whom? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Which is how I say I agree with you. Can we move on to the third time? Yeah, no, no, please no. do. Please do. He's right. He's right. Don't correct yeah. me in English. <laughs> they won't let me back into the country. Okay. And it's my turn to make a sacrifice to keep the queen alive for another year. <laughs> now, is that lawful good or is that considered lawful evil? Exactly. You ask the Irish, they're the ones getting sacrificed. <laughs> The Welsh are oddly No, quiet. we're allowed to. We're allowed to, Dan. We own their country. You okay. own half their country. <laughs> they live in the southern part underneath our country. But let's go. So the last one, um, the last question was about items. So what Lauren from uh, Yoen's Doodles says is that they tend to hand wave everything as far as items go until it gets to about the idea of uh, like rare spell components, at which point it starts to become quest items. Mm-hmm. How do you guys feel about this? Mm. So I kind of broke this down. There are a number of different questions. Let's roll initiative and Let's then I'm going to go through these. Try to rapid fire. 11. This. I got a three. I'm going first Eight. this entire episode. Yep. All right. So Dan. Go on, Dan. So the first one is, as a player, at what point do you stop tracking encumbrance, ammunitions, rations, and mundane gear like torches, feet of rope, candles, and caltrops? 
I am a uh, actively professing lazy player and lazy DM in the regards where I will have a rough idea of what I'm carrying, but I'm not really uh, targeting or, or keeping track of my encumbrance or any of those things. I find it bogs down the game in a way, but at the same time, I'm also the first player to get a bag of holding so that I can do that. Fucking hate bags of holding. And a lot of DMs hate bags of holding. For that reason, they take that out of it. I think now as I am starting to DM far more serious campaigns and less murder hobo-y slash uh, comedy campaigns, as I'm now starting to do that, I'm starting to, as a DM, want to track those things. Mm-hmm. Want to be aware of them. Specifically, I think, and this gets overlooked a lot because a lot of people argue about encumbrance in terms of gear, ammunition. How many bolts do you have how many arrows do you have um how many break when you shoot them and you cannot retrieve a, them? a lot of people call this uh gritty realism yeah and i don't think so this is just lo- logic as yeah. far as i'm concerned as a player i i do agree it is it is cumbersome to track encumberment but i would encourage it because it really does draw you into the game a little bit where now you're sitting here going i can't really pick up 14 suits of leather armor after we just killed all these gnolls we're just going to have to collect only the special items right and it actually helps mitigate your party wealth a little bit as well Hmm. terry you're next i believe you should track it to a certain extent because i find that a lot of the complaints that players and dms have can be fixed with just tracking it so when they're they say things like well you know humans don't have dark vision but in the end nobody cares anyway what i hear is oh, you never track whether or not the human fighter is using a torch. And because you never track it, it doesn't become important. Yeah. You know, and I've talked about in the podcast before, oh, well, gold, it just gets hand-waved. Nobody cares anymore. That's because you're letting your party carry 12,000 gold pieces as opposed to the maximum an individual can carry is 200 or something. Then it becomes important. Same with ammunition. If you crit fail and you're a ranger with a longbow, you lose your arrow or it snaps or the broadhead breaks off or something because that should be, it's easy enough to track. Okay, I'll make a shot. Okay, scratch the arrow off. It becomes part of the puzzle. I do believe in encumbrance. What about if I'm a rogue and my big plan is to sleight of hand and pickpocket the enemy liches or the enemy wizard components pouch? That's my plan. That's my strategy. If we're just saying it doesn't matter whether or not they have their back one off, then what's the point in me doing that? You know, that is a legit tactic in the battle. So I think to a certain extent, we do need to track it and it should be important. But I don't think that means, well, you know, this is weighs three pounds and this weighs 12 pounds. I'm not saying that. I mean, just have a realistic system that's easy to track because it adds another level to the game. And all of the complaints of this game gets boring because of this reason is because you're choosing not to use something which can make it more interesting. Yeah, okay. So my answer is a dungeon master because, mm-hmm. hello, forever DM. Yeah. Don't track it unless I tell you to. Sure. Okay, so I'm not going to worry about encumbrance, but obviously the half-orc and full-plate male weighs more than the halfling in leather. Yeah. Right? So when it comes time to cross the bridge, you're going to get a penalty. That is my version of tracking it. Hey, guys, we're going across the desert. It's a 20-day trek. Bring rations and water. I'm telling you, track that shit. Yeah, exactly. Right? And when it comes to things like arrows and ammunition or even torches and feet of rope and whatnot, after Tier 1, I don't care. Hmm. Because you will have, you will have the riches. You can just replenish that without really digging into your your um, your stash your reserves. Right? Yeah. So if you are not, if, if this is just throw away whatever money. Anytime we go back to town, I buy another torch. I'm not tracking copper pieces, man. I don't care. This is not why we play D and D. However, if you want to wheel a cannon into the fucking dungeon, <laughs> yes, I'm tracking encumbrance. <laughs> All right. So and that is the thing you can carry. Also, when you say that you have 17 pole arms sticking off your back, you're wrong. You don't. Fuck you. But you spin through three doors in one go to yeah. get away from the <laughs> goblin horde. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> your, yeah, your dex checks are going to have a real issue. Your your stealth is going to be uh, very hindered. Yeah. But here's the other thing I want to say about bag of holding, because you brought it up earlier, Dan. Remember, a bag of holding is 64 cubic feet. Mm-hmm. What that means to people is you have a four foot by four foot by four foot space to use. 64 cubic feet does not mean that it is 64 feet in any direction. You cannot put a wagon in there. You cannot put a great axe in there. Four feet by four feet by four feet. That's it. And you have to get it past the opening. 
the mouth of the bag. Dan's like, well, my great axe, fuck you, Dan. There are six foot great axes. Shut your face. So, <laughs> as a blacksmith, no. Okay, I'll shut up. You want to tell me there are not five foot great swords that exist out there? Well, five foot great swords. Yeah, and you want to tell me the axe head that can fit through the, the mouth of a bag of holding? A great axe? Yeah. The Technically, mo- great axes are maybe a foot wide at, at the head. That shit, that shit I'm going to have trouble getting into a backpack. And how wide's a battle axe? Huh? How wide's a... Huh? A battle That's axe is usually time. one blade. Okay. So it, it's a bigger blade, but it's I, one I, blade. I still challenge you to put that into the small pouch that is a bag of holding. You're not going to do it. So gearing up on all of that, well, I'm going to put six leather armors into the bag of holding is like, no, you're not, pal. Mm-hmm. You're just not. Yeah, and, and I would agree with you with all of this. In fact, it's backfired with on me as well that if you overfill a bag of holding, it does explode and so, all of its contents fall out. Yes, yeah, so here's my general rule. If you're having trouble figuring out how much goes in there, look underneath the table you're sitting at when you play D&D. If it can't fit under there and it can't fit through your mother's purse, like the zipper on your mother's purse then no it doesn't go in the bag of holding right I always operate bag of holdings as having like I I view them more as like garbage bags that just hold things you would but a a garbage bag is about 64 cubic feet Mm, it's 4 by 4 by 4 the the large ones are 48 liters whatever that works out to be good god we're not breaking down like liters and feet and stuff it sounds like a bag of holding is about the same size as a backpack so. Well, no, but the, the, here's, here's the other argument. There are other items. Hewitt's Handy Haversack, for one, which helps. Yeah, but you also have pocket dimensions and creative dungeon masters. That Portable make, holes. Yeah, like, look, you've got, you have answers here. The bag of holding, will it fit under your table? And will it fit through the opening in your mom's purse? If the answer is no, it doesn't go there. You cannot put a carriage in a bag of holding. I'm going to say mom's purse one more time because Terry giggles every time I say it. <laughs> Can you fit it in your mom's purse? So that's not a euphemism, Terry. Calm down. Um, when it comes to spell components, how closely should the players watch their supplies? Um, the gold, gold amounts. If it is 10 gold or less, I don't give a shit. If it is 10 gold or more, you have to track it. Yeah? Is that what it is for you? That's what it is for me. And I also pay very close attention to what is a focus and what is a component. As in, what does the spell use or what does the spell consume Mm. these are very two very different things Um, i know that there are a lot of spells where people identify for one uses a pearl but it's just a focus it doesn't consume the pearl well if you use a an arcane focus or a holy symbol it does not consume most of the items that you use yeah some of them do get consumed still like diamonds for resurrection spells still get consumed yeah right beyond that no if it's less than 10 gold man i don't have I don't want you to go to the store and be like, okay, so I need to buy back guano and several feathers and some cat whiskers and also some spider legs. And these are, and I'm like, this isn't a Hansel and Gretel poem. I don't give a shit. Just say, I'm buying spell components. Let's move on. We have intrigue and, and combat to get to. Yes, I agree. But also, when, when a spellcaster has just learned a new spell, if a wizard has just learned a new spell and this spell requires three macadamia nuts and a German man's mustache, like... It's, they, Sorry, they don't, cloud. <laughs> they don't wake up the next morning with those components. But again, I'm not going to hold up the whole campaign. I'll just say, hey, you know, what are the what are the components that you need or the material components? Okay, realistically, you're going to find those in the next town. This has a very or this spell has a very specific material component that you do not have access to in this cave right now. Yep. Or the other thing is uh, a wizard. It's the wizard that's always going to fall to this because right. they also have to get the the special paper and the special ink to copy spells into their special little book right. that is very special to them. But that is the trade-off for having phenomenal cosmic power. And Itty Bitty Living Space is also the yes! other trade-off. But the thing that I find as a fun role-playing encounter when you're in town is the wizard going, okay, I need to go shopping for spell components and paper and ink. Bye. Yeah. Right? And then let's leave the pal. Here's my shopping list for the paladin. These are the magic items I'm interested. If they could do these things, get those. I'm going to go do my thing. But also, the magic shop is going to have components as well, which often well, come into the game. I, I often go put Alchemist. it somewhere else. Yeah, I go to no or the apothecary or the herbalist. An, or an alchemist and an apothecary and an herbalist are kind of they're in the same. You just, shut your mouth. I you just like the them. idea of like the glass case that has like the different strains of bat guano in there as well <laughs> you 
<laughs> look through the glass. Oh, Please we don't, have, don't lean on the glass. We have don't some African glass. fruit bat guano uh, this week. Would you like to partake it's, in that? It's a beautiful blue flame, but smells <laughs> terrible. God. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was really something to behold. You guys just really loved that. I'm the same way, but I look at it like uh, based on tier will determine based on which level of coin. Right? So if it's tier one, copper pieces, yes, track that shit. Right? If, if your spell components would take copper pieces, yes. Tier two, silver pieces. Tier three, gold pieces. Tier four, platinum pieces. Tier four, I don't care. If it's, <laughs> like, at that point, unless it is going to cost you hundreds of gold pieces, or you need a gem, like you were saying, the, the diamond for, for resurrection spells, this is something that I can really limit mm-hmm. as a DM. And I can control what they can cast and when. Yeah. Are you trying to tell me that that Podunk village of a population of 250 doesn't have a 1,000 gold diamond? Exactly, right? And that's that's where I'm coming from with yeah. this is you need to look at A, is it available? B, do you have the funds? And again, this is just money. Do you piss this money away or not? Mm. If the answer is yes, this is nothing to you, then sure, you will get it. Or something similar. Mm-hmm. Because remember, wizards are supposed to spend all of their time trying new shit. Yeah. yeah. Right. Playing with their spells and does this work? Does that work? Maybe they have gone straight from like, hey, it takes a pound of bat guano or three tons of seagull shit, and we're on the coast. So, <laughs> guys, shovels. Well, let's go. <laughs> Barbarian offers to help by just running up and down the beach with his arms out with bags. <laughs> I'm helping. Da, da, da. I love what you just said about uh, how you can't just find. Diamonds oh, everywhere. Like going to the blacksmith. Like, do you know where I can find a thousand gold piece diamond? And he's like looking at his shop, going, "Do I look like I know how to access diamonds of that mm-hmm. size?" I have old musty paper. Why do you think I have yeah. a gigantic head size? If I knew diamond. where a diamond worth a thousand gold pieces was, I wouldn't be here. Yeah, <laughs> bending metal. Okay, so um, how closely should a DM then control what is available for spell components? Do you think that should be something the DM worries about? Or do you think that's up to the players? Just by just by having, hey, you know what? I haven't given them enough gold to deal with this yet, so it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Or should the DM go, well, we haven't fought a chimera, and they're usually in the mountains on the other side of the continent. So mm-hmm. the answer is, at what point do you do you say this is realism and this is horseshit? I like to... Dan, well, it's you get my to turn go first. Yeah. Okay, sure, yeah. go. Yeah. Shoot yeah. yourself what the the dice. I'm going to set you up, by the that's way. That's what the dice said. Okay. Because I get to go first. Um, Dan often comes first. See, that's what you get. That's what you get. Both of y'all rude. Why? That joke. No, you rolled first every uh single time. Uh Yeah, sure. Anyways, the way I do it is often because I'm the lazy DM, I will grab a D100 and I will roll it if it's something that is outside of the realm of reasonability to me. um, I will roll it and give it a random amount chance whether or not it'll be here depending on what spell it's associated with. At the same time, there is a certain amount of, I just don't care, right? Like if I'm balancing Big Bad Evil Guy's movements over on the other side of the continent. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm worrying about... Vecna is coming. (laughs) I I don't care if you need an entire bag of holding 64 cubic feet worth of bat guano. I don't care. If that's you, you have bigger concerns than finding 64 cubic feet of bat guano, right? So... And Dan um, knows you can't use a bag of holding because you can't get the shovel head inside, so... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you've really got to get your hands in there and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Fistful at a time. Yeah. Guano bowls. Collect the whole set. (laughs) Terry? What was the question? Because I just said that. (laughs) (laughs) What you just said, I just said in my head. How how closely should a DM be tracking this? I think you can come up... Okay, if you would like to track it fairly closely... Use this as an opportunity to make the game more interesting. You said Chimera Blood or something earlier. Yeah. Give the players an opportunity where a traveling salesman is going to be, have all these items and then one of the interesting things is Chimera Steaks or something like that. Like That's just an example off the top of my head. But also players look for ways to find it interesting. I mean, I love to cast Bane all the time. And I think you need like three drops of blood or something. And one of the things I did was I just used to bite my hand and that was part of it. Or like yeah. if you need water, I just spit into my hand or whatever. It's it's all part of the, of the magic of the game. But as a DM, if the specific components, you owe it to the players to give them not just one opportunity to find it. If they miss the first one, give them something else. I like the idea of a party of adventurers going to the traveling merchant and being like, listen, we know you're called a snake oil merchant, but do you have any literal snake oil? We need it for our spells. (laughs) Oh, okay. You don't have snake oil? You are a snake oil merchant. All right. Come on. Here's something that I would do now. Okay. You've inspired me. Level three spell. 
summon component. It's a ritual, but it... Uh, no, it's not a ritual. It takes up a spell slot. Sure. Mm, I, I like the idea of it being a ritual. I know you like it being a ritual because you want to break the shit out of that no, and no, cast no. 900 times. No, I, and I would say that it functions a lot like a teleport spell where you have to roll a percentile chance to see if you succeed on bringing the item you want in. And sure, if you yeah, fail okay. that, and if you have experience with it, you're a little bit more proficient with bringing that in. But um, if you are not experienced with that particular uh, component and you roll on the dice and it's something you need critically for this one spell, but you can't find it anywhere else, and all of a sudden it, like a uh, sapphire worth 1,000 gold pops up instead of that diamond, you're just like, well... I like the idea of when you summon it, it flies towards you, and depending on how far away it is, is how long it's going to take. So if it is back guano, for example, we don't know how long it's going to take. I imagine the caster probably would know. Can you imagine looking at the bat's face? Oh, <laughs> like as it's coming out. Of but even like if you're like close to the barbarian, you should probably lie down. It's coming. The wizard that creates <laughs> that spell is named Dyson. Is my thought? Is my thinking? <laughs> Dyson. Yeah. Um, no, I, I like the idea too of there being the depending on the spell level as well that will determine what the what the difficulty of summoning this would be. I think that it should be a third level spell. I think it needs to take up a spell slot, and it should take ten minutes to cast. Yeah. Just so that people don't abuse the shit out of this every single day. Right, you're not going to take this at third level, but you may take it at, or when you get third level spells, um, you 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 may take this at eleventh level. You may you may want to be able to do that, mm-hmm. yeah. Just because you've got some real heavy shit coming that you just don't have diamonds. When it comes time for true resurrection, you can say, okay, everybody, hold on, I'm going to blow a third level spell. We're going to get some diamonds. Hold on, yeah. Oh, make it make it scalable. That's, like that's it, what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So it's it's more difficult. Right, the further on you go. But it needs to be a third level or higher spell, right? So it's not getting abused. Yeah. Anyway, that's 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 my suggestion. Homebrew the shit out of that. Sure. Cool. Um, that's pretty much it for this mailbag episode dedicated to Lauren at Yoen's Doodles. Again, check the crazy spelling down in the show notes. Thank you to you and everyone else who participated. Stay tuned for future giveaways and more mailbags that you can send us your questions at on Instagram or Facebook or on the official post. That is on r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. And of course, you can always reach us at info at it's a mimic.com. So Lauren has a unique way of getting her players to level. She has what she likes to call experience cookies. She hands out these cookies as a DM whenever she sees a player doing something particularly inspired at the table. They can be worth 50, 200, or 500 experience, depending on which cookie she hands out. There are also friend cookies worth 50 experience each. And all the players around the table get three of these at the beginning of the session with their names on them. During the game, they can hand them out to other players that they want to reward. They can also transfer 50 experience worth of DM cookies if they'd like. And finally, there are pun cookies that she hands out for ridiculously funny plays on words. They're worth 10 or 100 experience and are awarded by the DM. And at the end of the session, each player tallies the experience that they've accumulated and Lauren collects the cookies. That's right, these are physical cookies. She makes these cute little laminated cookie tokens and keeps them in a little recipe card holder and hands them out during sessions. So the way that it works is that there are these milestone events that represent story beats. Whenever one of these is completed, the players can choose whether or not to cash in their accumulated experience to gain levels. In her system, you can actually gain multiple levels at once. For example, she will say that at a certain milestone, you can spend 800 experience to gain one level, 1900 to gain two levels, or 3,000 to gain three. If you have 2,300, which is more than the 19 for two levels, then you can gain two levels now, or gain one and save the remaining to stack up so you can gain multiple Ooh. levels next time. How do you guys feel about this crazy homebrew method of leveling up? Are you rolling dice for this? Yep. 12. Well, it's last every time. Eight. Yeah, I went last once. I went last yeah. twice. All right. Dan, with your last. weighted dice. Yeah, this is bullshit, by the way. I like the idea of holding off leveling until you get to a rest zone or something. You finish this great arc, and it's called a bed, Dan. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I'm no, I'm 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 saying like a city or a camp or or like the end of a story. (laughs) Fuck, guys, I'm trying to do a thing. Right, okay. Um, (laughs) Can if you want, but (laughs) cool, Lauren. I like the idea of. Having a spot where like you finish this big story beat, you've done maybe it's been a month or two months worth of sessions and you have just accumulated this wealth of things that you then spend to gain levels in one go rather than somehow in the middle of an like in the middle of a adventure 
saying, okay, you guys have actually grabbed the thing you need for this milestone or you've technically reached the amount of experience you need. So yes, I know you just finished killing goblins for the hundredth time, but you're now level four. That feels rough to me. This feels like, okay, now that you guys have a second to breathe, you have a second to reassess what your abilities are and hey, you can now do more things. I like that. I, as a player, would be upset that she's handing out cookies that aren't real cookies. <laughs> I and can't believe yeah. how slowly and methodically he said that, as though he had a genuine issue. <laughs> Lauren, he has his hands pressed together, and he's tapping them on the table like a politician here. Like fucking Trudeau. I love cookies, he and I married that. a woman who bakes wonderful cookies. Is that a is euphemism? Are we back to fuck zones? Is that <laughs> what this is? So now I gotta keep it in. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Adam. I, I understand it'd be a lot of work to make that many cookies. I would refine the system so there wasn't so much rules to it necessarily. Like, I like the idea of giving cookies out as in, uh, inspiration and then you trade cookies. I mean, it's COVID. Don't do this during COVID. But otherwise... Well, I mean, I don't know. Sure, if you can... You're just going to track them some way anyway. I, I I saw the pictures of the cookies and they're actually like... She draws them and stuff and laminates them. And All right, like, cool. Like, it's, it's, I really liked it. I go next, so... Um, I I really really liked this way of doing yeah. it. Um, I like the idea of you being able to cash in for different levels at different times as well. I, as a dungeon master, would be manipulating where these quote unquote milestones are. Oh yeah, of course. Just to really make it so that some people have to have to really weigh the idea: Do I want one level now, or do I want two levels later? And maybe there are consequences for leveling too quickly and stuff like that. Like I would play with this. I'm not usually big on homebrew leveling stuff. I just go, ah, milestones, right? But if I was going to, it would be something like this, where you are earning it, and you can track it as you go, but it's not the traditional, you killed a freaking onkeg, and here's however many experience points you've earned. Yeah. Terry? Well, Lauren, I like the intent, and I like what you're doing. Clearly, you had a reason why you came up with this system. There was something good that you were trying to achieve, and this model is built around, I'm sure, just great intentions. Um, but I just wonder what the feedback is you've had from your players. Because for me, when I'm leveling, I like to enjoy each level. Oh, now I'm level 12 and the excitement that comes in level 13, level 14. I, I'm not sure what your reason was for, for making players be able to skip levels. What I do like is that that's not necessary. Uh, but it sounds like there's a particular thing that you like about this and you're trying to achieve. But of course, the consequences we're now removing other parts of the game. So I see where you're going and I really like it. I think there maybe could be an opportunity to just look at it again and see what the benefit is and weigh it out with what are we losing and then listen to what the players are telling you, maybe without telling you about what they feel that they're missing out on. She did say that it took people a while to get comfortable with, to get right. used to the idea, but they really love these because it's in the middle of the session. It's like, hey, you know what? Hilarious pun. Take this. Or you've done a really good job with that social encounter. Here you go. Have a cookie. Yeah. Right? And you know what? Like it's... This game can be played different ways, and the whole point of this game is it's just fun. Don't tell other people how to have fun, right? Even though yeah. we do that every week. <laughs> Don't tell the people that. And if if her table is enjoying making these puns and getting these cookies, and that's how they love that game, more power to them. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's wrong, because honestly, I probably would like to do that as well for a little bit. I actually have an idea, um, because if... Is it experience cakes? No, it's not experience cakes. Oh, shit. Um, Travis, write if, that down. If, if, uh, Producer Travis. The idea of experience cookies and adding this kind of varied experience per player is a bit too much for you to track as a DM. I know it would be for me because I've got, like we said, we've got the big bad movement happening across the mountain that I'm also keeping track of. I don't want to be keeping track of exactly where everyone's experience is. Use these cookies as we do in our games, these inspiration dice things where depending on what level of awesomeness you hand out these cookies as inspiration dice. So say it's a smaller little laminated cookie, someone makes it an awesome pun, you hand that to them, they can now spend that for an additional D4 on a roll. Right. Right? Or or the point is that different tables homebrew reward systems in yeah. different ways. Right. I would do them as inspiration dice, not experience. I understand why the experience is there. What led you to do the experience? I think this system fits a little bit better as a inspiration dice thing, or at least in my table, I would use it as an inspiration dice, not an experience thing. Because I, like Adam, like to kind of keep all my players at the same level because it's easier for me to manage and build encounters that way. I'm also starting to come to the point where I want to play with the different aspects of this. I played D&D &D enough that I want to try the, this experience cookies yeah. way of doing it to see what happens. 
right? And I want to try it with the hardcore watching the, the experience and playing a stereotypical standard D&D game. You guys do a dungeon crawl, then you go and you rescue the princess, you fight a young dragon, and we track experience all the way through. What does Fit Dead look like when you do that? Yeah. Uh, right? And so I've always played it with with alternative means, but very simplistic means of, of leveling. Yeah. And I'd be interested in, in digging into this. One of my favorite things is Call of Cthulhu, which doesn't level you at all. Right? You just you just get better if you are good at things. Yeah. But you never win. No, you don't. You, you just <laughs> you, you just do win. a little better every time. <laughs> no, you don't. You get killed by flying fucking bricks. Anyways. <laughs> Lauren, hats off to you, though. You come up with a system. You're trying to be an innovator, and you're doing something positive for your party. And her players like it. And that's the most important thing. And what exactly. more can we ask for, right? Yeah. You've reached the end of another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. Connect with us at itsamimic.com. Don't forget to subscribe and hit those share buttons. Thanks for listening and see you next week. I still say a great axe can fit into a bag of holding. No. No. But here's the problem. Dan thinks it's the fucking body spray. Mm. It's a great axe. We call it lynx in England. Why? I don't fucking know. I don't know why. You I don't think you axe. can fit a lynx in we a, call a bag of holding. Walkers I don't think a lynx will let you try to fit in a bag of holding. I think we just like to be different. We call Lay's chips Walker's chips. What we call crisps, but yeah. So hold on. So you get laid in the states, but you walk in the walk of shame. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, there, there you go. Let me scratch my penis for a second. <laughs> That's the aftergrowth. Yeah, okay, now it's not the end. That's staying in. <laughs>